Welcome back to Pod is a Woman. I'm Alejandra. I'm Darian. And I'm Johanna. On today's episode, now that Trump has finally cleared the way for Biden's transition process to formally begin, we're going to dive deeper into that process based on our own experiences in the Obama White House. And also, we had many incredible potential potuses to choose from based on Biden's recent announcements. So we'll get to that at the end of the show. But first, let's talk ascertainment by the GSA, the General Services Administration. Why was that so significant? So we are ascertained. So outside of the world of government, this may not mean much, but just by virtue of a signature on a piece of paper, it sets up all of the federal government resources and all of the process that has to take place over these next two months to really prep the incoming administration to take over all the levers of government. That's right, Johanna. And so we are now able to start security clearances for potential cabinet members. We're able to access office space and secure facilities so that they can have those conversations internationally about threat levels and have classified conversations that allow for an incoming administration to really be fully prepared for what they are taking on once they take office. This is a way for them to be day one ready. And if you've never heard the term ascertainment, you are not alone because this is not normally something that is an issue. Normally, this is a part of normal process. It just happens. But obviously, because of the Trump administration pushing back and challenging this election, this has become the sticking point that we've been caught at for the past few weeks. It has really been a foil to the Biden transition effort being able to get moving. Well, this shouldn't be controversial is really what it comes down to. When you are trying to have a peaceful transition of power, you set your successor up for success. You provide them with all of the resources that they need. And for this to have been as delayed and for it to have been as politicized as it has been, it's really yeah. a sign of the times. Yeah. Well, and it, you're right, because you guys remember, but it means the end of the campaign. So a lot of people who have been working very hard for President-elect Biden are now kind of trying to figure out, well, do they have a role in that government? And um, look, there are a ton of people who work on campaign after campaign and they don't actually go into the government. But there are a lot of people who may be policy people who may be doing communications and they're trying to figure out, OK, am I part of this administration, you know, going on. I've gotten a lot of calls from folks yeah. freaking out trying to understand that process. I don't know about you guys. For sure. And just trying to understand what it means. And I remember we used to have the plum book, which I don't even know if it exists anymore, that would list all the jobs. But there are so many very unique jobs within the administration, whether it be at the White House directly or at one of the agencies, there's, I think, over 9,000 or maybe even close to 10,000 jobs that are available and people don't know who they need to speak to. And because we've only now just got one of the most wonderful women, Kathy Russell, is taking over as the director of presidential personnel, and she will help sort all of that out. So let's paint the picture for a second, because do you guys remember what this felt like when we were in these seats? Because 
I don't know if folks realize how much people work for free in these campaigns or for peanuts. And a lot of times they're living in what's called supporter housing. So you're living, I I was living in someone's basement, you know, it was a nice basement, but it was someone's basement. They just like kind of put up different campaign workers. And so you're talking about, obviously this was not a typical campaign. A lot of this was done remotely, but you're talking about a lot of young people that put their lives on hold that were maybe volunteering their time. And especially in the pandemic, don't have a lot of financial security so this is the time when everyone's like okay you know this is not why I worked on the campaign I worked on this campaign because I believed in a president Biden but I gee I would love to get into the administration and have a job now and I think that there's also a lack of clarity as to what jobs exist out there and how a lot of people don't realize there are four different ways that you can be appointed a position in the administration. One of them, very senior, you know, the presidential appointment that requires Senate confirmation. So those are your, you know, deputy secretaries, cabinet secretaries. And then there there are those that don't require Senate confirmation. And that's like your senior advisor. But then there are also very senior roles that are called selective senior executive service. And those are generally at, you know, the agencies. And then, of course, there are the roles that we were in, and those are Schedule C appointees. And it's very hard to delineate which one you think that you fall into the right category for. Well, and that's the thing that I have to keep telling folks is that it's often not that person who's going to delineate it, right? Like this time, if you want to serve, is the time to really like count out what you have done and what you're going to bring to a post and kind of think about that role in a different way than even I did. I mean, I I had never worked on a presidential campaign when I worked on President Obama's mm-hmm. campaign. Mm-hmm. And I had worked in state government and I had worked at, you know, in a governor's office, but I had no idea. And so they did. They did this call while we were all on the uh, inauguration team telling us about the plum book and the plum book is like this it's been around for years it's kind of this spells out all these different positions and I was like what like I don't know what position I would even you know be qualified but all I did was actually submit my resume on the website that they are looking for resumes and because my job was one that translated. Now, there were like hundreds of people who did what we did. At the end of the day, there were two of us that were called to be press leads into the White House. And it is an extraordinary honor. But I think that people have to remember that the Biden team is going through a very thorough process and give a little bit of patience for setting up the government and just understand that he is trying to represent all people, all backgrounds. So let's talk about the roles that we had at the White House. I, for the first 18 months, was the West Wing receptionist, or ROTUS, as the president used to call it, receptionist of the United States. And then I served as the director of Veterans, Wounded Warriors, and Military Families Outreach in the Office of Public Engagement. I served in the White House Chief of Staff's office for the first two years as a special assistant to the Deputy Chief of Staff for Policy. And then after that, I served for two years as White House Deputy Director of Hispanic Media which basically meant that I helped develop and implement the White House's communication strategy as it related to the U.S. Latino community around a number of issues, including health care, education, and so on. And I served for six years on the president's press advance team, working with the press office and with scheduling in advance 
to make sure that all of the images that the world would see were exactly as we wanted them presented. And Johanna, so when you went through the process, and I'm just curious, I know that Alejandra and I started very soon after the inauguration. I was there on day one. Me too. How long did it take for you? Yeah? Yeah. So I remember um, (laughs) it was Thanksgiving. uh, 2008 was my last Thanksgiving that I had for like, you know, that was unencumbered because we had ended the campaign. Like I had stayed on for a little while to set up stuff in Chicago and then I had gone home and slept. And um, and then that Thanksgiving was the last time I had before I had to move to D.C. for the inauguration. So I was on the inaugural team. But I got a call when I was at the Lincoln Memorial setting up at some point. I got a call from the person I reported to saying, you know, we'd like you to join the White House team on day one. And so I was actually at the White House for Inauguration Day and saw out the Bushes and the Cheneys walking out with the Obamas and the Bidens. And it's this it's the bizarre experience because it's your first time. Like for me, it was the first time inside the White House gates. And then you have to like figure out, oh, my God, I don't know what my job is, but I knew I was going straight into the administration. And so then I came in and filled out my paperwork after we did the the National Cathedral event on the day after the inauguration. You have a great memory because I'm like, as I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking through what I was doing and feeling it during this time, too. And I don't know if I remember everything as crisply as you do. (laughs) Me either. I I do remember, you know, submitting my resume in the same way, you know, obviously, unless you are at the level of the folks that are being announced right now, the Tony Blinkens and so on, Mm -hmm. they find out pretty soon that they have a job, but all the rest of us don't. And so I remember submitting my resume and that in the weeks right up against the inauguration, I had several interviews in different kinds of positions to work for different senior staff within the White House. Then that's when I met with Mona Sutphin, who ended up being the deputy chief of staff under Rahm Emanuel. And she worked on the policy piece of it. And I ended up working as her special assistant the first couple of years. But that literally happened the days leading up to inauguration. And I was there the first day as well. I remember signing paperwork over across the street from the White House in the Mm -hmm. old executive office building. And the first time I walked into the West Wing was to go sit at my desk. So I was like (laughs) trying to keep it cool, act like you've been there before, but I hadn't even been on a White House (laughs) tour at that point. So I was just like, I, I, my, my office, which was attached to my boss's office was in the West Wing, right by the Roosevelt Room. In fact, my wall, on the other side of my wall, was the Roosevelt Room, diagonal from the Oval Office. And so it, it really was like the that first day just like was a mind-blowing day. But, you know, like that was, that all happened so fast. And I think that a lot of folks don't know what to expect during this time. I certainly, if you had asked me two weeks before that, if I was going to be sitting in that office, I would have never believed you. Um, Alejandro, you are so right. And now you are jogging my memory and bringing back so many (laughs) memories of the uncertainty that existed. And my experience was a little unique in that I flew out the day after we were elected to start on the transition. I worked the 75 days on the transition, which for those people who are out there who are working on the transition now, my heart goes out to you. It is such a challenging time and to do it at the holidays as well, especially given the conditions that we're in. I just, I am so grateful for their efforts and what they are sacrificing for our government. 
But those 75 days were some of the most challenging days I experienced. And then about a week before the inauguration, the director of management and administration calls me into his office. And I had had a couple of offers um, just because I had been handling all of the travel arrangements for so many people. But he lays out the blueprints to the West Wing. And like you, Alejandra, I had never even been to the White House before. And I remember walking on the ellipse and thinking, it really looks so much closer when I see it on TV. I don't know why it's so far away, but I just didn't have that experience growing up or through my education. And I had lived overseas a lot of my life, so I was never in D.C. And he laid out the blueprints to the West Wing and he says, you know, this is the Oval and this is where the National Security Advisor is. Here's where the Vice President's office is. Can you sit here and run the West Wing? And like so many other things, I just said, yeah, sh- sure, I guess I can do that. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, of course <laughs> I can. Of course I can. And we got there on that first day and we swore in. And that's the first time that I had been sworn in since I joined the military. And then they said, okay, we'll go find your desk. And I said, what? I don't know where I'm supposed to go. And so I saw the desk in the West Wing and I saw the Marine standing there. And this is the day after the inauguration. And I think to myself, I'm not supposed to be here. I'm definitely going to get thrown out. I don't have a security <laughs> clearance yet. None of this makes sense. I had, you know, started the process with the SF-86. But so I went down to the director of scheduling, who ended up being the deputy chief of staff, Alyssa Mastermonico's office. And I just sat there until somebody told me where I was supposed <laughs> to be. And I actually reached out on Facebook to my predecessor from the Bush administration to see if she could tell me what exactly was expected of me because I was so confused. And you know, you're you're so right, Darren, about like the fact that you really were the first person that anyone saw when they walked in the West Wing. Yeah. Because to paint a picture, that was the way I walked into the quote office every morning. I would walk down that road that you always see all the press, you know, doing their stand up um, where you see the White House in the background. There's a, a walk path right there. I would walk down that path And then a Marine would open, a white-gloved Marine would open the door to the West Wing. That's quite a welcome every morning when you get to work. (laughs) And as I walked in, there was Darian sitting on the right-hand side. Like, you you literally couldn't walk. With beautiful flowers. Beautiful flowers. You you couldn't walk into the West Wing without um, passing through Darian. So um, that that was definitely the gatekeeper role. And then I would take a shortcut through the Roosevelt Room on my way <laughs> to the well, desk. Well, fun, fun fact, there's a buzzer at that desk that you, when you see people coming or going, you can press. And the Marine sentries usually press it, but if they're not there or if they're in the middle of a transition, I can, you could press it, you know, as a receptionist as did well. Did you ever press it for me? I probably did. I pressed <laughs> it for so many people. She's just so kind. Okay, so you mentioned something that I thought was interesting about the SF-86. Do you want to talk, Johanna, about what There's that is? There's two things. So, Darian, I want to say, like, I also did not have any family members who were connected to the White House. And so I had never gone on a tour. And I'm guessing that a lot of our listeners are probably the same. And I did not know that you are actually allowed, because it is the people 
People's House to request a tour through your congressional representative of the White House. And you can go on a West Wing tour. And I am sure that once it's allowed at a safe social distance again, that the Biden administration is going to open up the White House. And that's going to be awesome. But SF-86, um, you know, Darian, you brought up the SF-86. And that is a form that I had no idea what it meant. But it is a form in which you are supposed to put all of your deepest, darkest secrets so that the FBI can do a complete and thorough background check. So you have to do for the last like decade all of the addresses you've stayed at, any foreign national you've met, any drug that you've ever done, you know, like anything that you could be blackmailed for you're supposed to admit it. But when I have to admit, when I first saw this form, you know, I didn't know, oh no, you're supposed to put everything that you possibly did. <laughs> and evidently no one told yes. Jared Kushner this. It can be this. overwhelming. It can it's definitely overwhelming. be overwhelming. Well, if you have a lot of bad things you did, it's overwhelming. <laughs> well, or no, it could not that's, be. <laughs> that's not necessarily true. I was in the military. I was a military brat. We moved all over the world so many times. I had four different high schools. And so having to list all of the addresses and people who could confirm that I lived there, people could confirm any sort of drug use or yes. poor behavior that might be considered questionable, you have to have someone willing to verify well, that that's what you, who you were and where you were. The address thing was the biggest pain because, yeah. again, to explain to folks, so what they do is you have to list every single place you've ever lived, but what they do is they show up. Yep. And when they show up, they knock on the door there and they go, hey, did Alejandra ever live here? Did you recognize this person? And they go, yes or no. But the only thing that they say is that she's a person of interest. I mean, they weren't saying, they weren't going around saying like, oh, you know, Alejandra is up for a job in the White House. Oh, no, no, no. I'm a person <laughs> of interest. The FBI is at the door because I'm a person of interest. And then... Well, they do say, yes, you know, we, we did see her around town. They go, great. Can you now give us another person? So they yeah. go like two layers deep. So it ends up getting, I was getting calls from like, I mean, I was a waitress probably yep. five years before I worked at the White House. Talk about focusing yourself. And I was getting calls from people that I waited tables with in Malibu being like, um, the FBI said you're a person of interest. What's happening? Are you okay? <laughs> and so it also that took, uh, they're so thorough with this. It took about eight months because yes. I had top secret security clearance. You know, Same. working in the chief of staff's office every morning, you know, this security intelligence briefing that, that Trump finally gave president-elect biden access to it would like plop down on my desk before my boss and you know like whether or not this it was my job to read it which it wasn't it was my job to handle it and so right. they need to make sure that no one's hands touch this information that hadn't been checked and so the level of detail that they go into and that's another reason we're talking about the ascertainment it was so important yeah. to get this process going is because you know people need to get the security clearances underway because it's it's going to be the almost close to a year before some of these are done well and the other thing so they also went to pizza hut which i had waitressed at and they asked some of those same questions but they also ask does she have any enemies 
because right. they want to go to anyone who would blackmail you and ask, did this person do any, you know, uh, drugs? Do you have any like information of improprieties like tax evasion or anything like that? Because anything that you are doing that is illegal, you need to admit to or you're blackmailable. That's so, right. you know, it was the weirdest thing getting calls from like Galesburg and throughout like my career, like Lawrence, Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, like Des Moines, Iowa, from people being like, um, this is super weird. Am I supposed to tell the truth? And so then you have to tell your best friends, because for me, there was a lot that I admitted to. And so I'm like, yes, please tell them the truth, the full truth, and nothing but please the truth. Please verify all of my bad behavior. <laughs> yes. Well, because, the, and what they told you, and you know, I, I believe it to be true, is, you know, if, if there's like a little something, you know, that you find embarrassing or you don't want to admit to, just admit to it, get it on the record, because that won't be a problem. You know, say you did drugs once or something like that. That won't be a problem. But if they find out that you lied about it, that's the, that's part. And the it's, problem. It's yes. the lying. And so I was really fortunate in that I did have a little bit of experience having served in the military. And also my mom was a counterintelligence agent for NSA and a polygraph analyst. Well, so I... <laughs> I learned really early not to lie to my mom about a number of things. And when it came to time to do the SF-86 for the White House, it was a little bit easier. And I also had some of the records. But as we're talking about um, the SF-86, Johanna, you brought up something that I thought was really interesting that we did not get a chance to talk about. And that's the Jared Kushner issue. Oh, I know, right? Like he said, "Oh, they didn't tell me to say everything on it." And it's like they there are different people that gave you advice than that gave us advice because I'm sure you guys also got the advice like you need to tell us everything. And then offline everybody behind the scenes was also saying, "Tell them everything." Just but be also, completely honest. But also there you go through a formal training it's not like a subjective yeah. thing you go no. through a formal training with career folks who explain to you what you have to say and what it, what's involved so I don't I don't really buy that whole I did no argument we all had the same briefing didn't we yeah we all had oh. the same briefing and I think what's also really interesting about that specific situation is he was denied for that top secret security yes. clearance twice which we and all we all it, had that's exactly right <laughs> and so someone had to push that along and I find that that is one of the more questionable decisions that the Trump administration made because the reason why they were concerned about it I remember is because of his potential ties to foreign entities yeah and if that's not scary to Americans from a national security perspective I don't know what is and you have to realize how sought after these security clearances are. It sounds like we're nerding out here, but people like <laughs> literally put them on their resumes you know, know. when they leave government because Absolutely. having because that means basically your entire life has been scrubbed and kind of yeah. approved. Because to give you an example, if any of us, the three of us were to go back into public service right now and go into the Biden White House, our security clearance would start at whatever age the last one was completed. They don't go yeah. back into that time. So it's kind of, it's been blessed and, and kind of ascertained as being kosher, <laughs> right? We've been endorsed, but they do, they do have you update it. So I remember I got to update it at some point because I had been there for so long and they do like, that's the, the one thing that I'm so thrilled that Joe Biden is appointing very cleared and wonderful people is because they have been through this process. Absolutely. And 
Well, and I think that, you know, if anybody's going in looking for power, um, shame, you should be going in and looking for service. Right. And so that's the, the thing that I realized, and I'm sure all of us realized, is that the service that you're about to get into will change the rest of your life. Like, it will it will help write your story, but you are in service of the American people and you better believe that you're in service for every American people. And so everything you do can be scrutinized and yes. should be. And should it, be. As it should be. And, you know, I went in with this military experience and coming from this background very deep into service to country and service to one another and was able to provide access to the White House in a way that felt really authentic to me. And I, especially in the role as Director of Veterans Wounded Warriors and Military Families Outreach, I was able to help create opportunities for Gold Star families to talk to the president to help build on military families initiatives and outreach efforts and doing it in a way in a way that felt really genuine and helped the president and first lady and vice president and Dr. Biden and the president-elect already had that service in their family through Bo and through Hunter, but they really wanted to continue that and being able to, you know, staff them for dinners at their residence or go with the president to Walter Reed or to take care of the events around Veterans Day or Memorial Day. It impacted my life personally and professionally in a way that has like lasting gratitude for me. I am so grateful and so humbled by the opportunity to serve. And to your point, Johanna, if you go into this wanting a resume builder or to do this because it looks good, and especially in D.C. where people are so concerned about who you work for, and what's the uh, you know, highest level of government that you are in, that's not what working in the White House or being one of these appointees and working at the you know, pleasure of the president, that's not what you go into this work for because it's a lot of long hours and there's no pay. I remember when I had my first New York Times article come out and people online started saying, well, why... Why isn't she dressed nicer? Why isn't her hair done? She must have a stipend for clothing allowance. She must have this and that. And there are not a ton of benefits that come with these appointments. And at the time, and the New York Times posted my salary yeah. in there. And people were shocked by how little you make. But you can't go into government, and especially these roles, expecting to you know, be rolling in money. That's something that the three of us share, which is the three of us didn't go into this as kind of like these political animals that were like reaching for power or trying to find our way in the food chain to satisfy any sort of ego. Like the three of us yeah. got into it because we believed in President Obama. We believed in his vision for the country and because we like sincerely wanted to do our part to contribute. And we're kind of shocked that we ended up there in the first place, you know? <laughs> I mean, my mom immigrated to this country just a few years before I was born from Mexico and was a single mom when she raised me. And I didn't come from a political family. We never talked about politics. It wasn't something that was even like conceivable. And I know a lot of people say that, but I mean, I'd never been to D.C. I'd never even... I had never worked on a presidential campaign either, like Johanna mentioned. And so 
to be there and then to eventually work as deputy director of Hispanic media was such a full circle moment of my mom's experience coming to this country and really bootstrapping it, you know, and having to deal with going home sometimes when I could for the holidays, you know, thinking about that now and to sit with family and to actually get to live still the issues that we were working on at the White House that folks were actually living with job insecurity, actually dealing with healthcare issues, actually not having access to education or good education, you know, and then go to the White House and kind of be living in that duality. It really was straddling the these two worlds in a way that a lot of times when you have a bicultural upbringing and the, the children of immigrants a lot of times experience this, you know, at a very high frequency. And so it's, felt bigger than me. I know it felt bigger than us this whole moment. And it really, it really changed my perspective about what was possible. And, and I'm so glad to know that now that same perspective is going to be back in the White House, which is the open door policy to people like us, to people who have lived the issues, because that empathy and that lived experience is what we need when folks are in so much pain. And that's what it was like when we were there. That's right. And, you know, I'm seeing now all of these incredible public servants being nominated to serve this administration and serve in the cabinet. And I'm in awe because these are people who didn't necessarily have mommy or daddy's help. They're not, you know, linked directly to the president by familial relations. It is people who worked really hard and earned their way. And I think that that's Part of the American dream is that you can come from nothing and work really hard and serve in earnest and be rewarded for that service. And I really did feel like my ability to work at the White House was part of, you know, having worked really hard to be there and to not have taken it for granted. And to still to this day, I am in Uh, that I was even selected and very humbled Mm -hmm. to have been selected and provided that opportunity. And I know that as I'm seeing names start to come out, it's just, it's an incredible opportunity for these leaders. Well, you know, I traveled to 42 countries with President Obama. And that's one thing that I walked away from with such a different perspective. Because, you know, I was raised in Galesburg, Illinois, which President Obama talks about because Galesburg lost manufacturing. It's indicative of a lot of the economic changes that we're going through firsthand because of changes in technology, globalization, you know, some of the changes in terms of manufacturing and advanced manufacturing. And I got to travel with him, with you guys, around the world on Air Force One. And you see the world in a different light. Like, first of all, you see all of the extraordinary advantages we have in America, knowing that we have um, people we have to do better, but housed. We have water. We have running water. We have, you know, the the things that, that we take for granted are not accessible in most places around the world. And so you realize that actually our our um, real advantage is going to be when we come together and we start solving problems for the world, we'll be in such a better place than we are. I, I think, you know, like for all of us, um, 
I don't think I spent many holidays at home. And I think I I was in Afghanistan seven weeks after I delivered my son, Hugh. And pretty much until I got off that crazy rocket ship in 2015, life was not the same, which is why I am so thrilled to see so many other people sign up and we will be rooting for you on the outside. Good luck. Godspeed. You know, Johanna, I remember the holidays were so significant for me. And I'm seeing now as we are going into this week of Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving is what I call my family Super Bowl. We are such a large tribe of people. And when we come together, it's cooking for days and dancing in the kitchen and, you know, seeing how much my nieces and nephews have grown. And the last time that I missed Thanksgiving with my family was in 2011 when I was in Baghdad with the vice president. And these holidays, this season is really hard on a lot of people. And I am seeing that I was in the grocery store earlier today and I saw two women crying and I ran into a family friend and she started crying, telling me how proud she was of me. And the mother that I've become and the, you know, person that I've become. And there were so many people that were just outwardly expressing emotion. And I'm seeing the emotional toll that this quarantine and this pandemic have really taken on people. I don't know if you girls have seen that either. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's hard because I remember missing a lot of holidays when I was working at the White House because it was a lot to fly all the way back to Los Angeles and you weren't going to be able to be here for very long and turn right around and go. And you were also super exhausted. I mean, I remember I had to yeah. take prescription level vitamin D because since I would get to work when it was dark and leave when it was dark, That's right. my hair had started falling out <laughs> and I was starting to like get this like weird like paleness in my skin. So, you know, you were just like, okay, or maybe instead of getting on an airplane, I'll just sleep for a couple days now that I have like a couple days off. So, you know, it's, I really do cherish that time now, especially after not having had it for those years. But in my family, you know, there's been generations of women that have had breast cancer and have had chemo. And so being immunocompromised during a pandemic, we're just not going to get together. Yeah, I've personally been quarantining super strictly. You girls know, like I like literally stay in my house so that I can see my mom socially distanced outside across the yard. So I will get to see my mother for Thanksgiving. And I'm so, so grateful for that. But I mean, to not be able to hug her, you know, and to have to eat out of like pre-separated Tupperwares, which is what we do. We like separate all the food beforehand. It just, it feels, um, I don't know. It just feels really impersonal. Right. But, you know, just how those years at the White House without Thanksgiving made us appreciate it more. I mean, can you guys imagine our Thanksgiving next year? Because, Darian, my family is like yours. I have like 20 cousins and like there's like (laughs) I'm a Latina. I'm a Latin Catholic family. So it's definitely going to be a big one next year. I um, was supposed to have my girlfriend from Galesburg who lives in the Bay Area. She and her family were going to come down. But because California is spiking so badly, we decided to cancel. And so, you know, for us, it's just going to be Hugh, CJ, and I for the first time. 
And, you know, he was three when I left the White House. And it was really hard because I was traveling all the time away from him. And so one thing I am grateful for this Thanksgiving is that I will be there with my son. And I think, you know, maybe we don't get to see everybody, but we set up a Zoom's giving and we're going to try (laughs) and we're going to try for 2021. It's going to be a great year. And that's right. You know, we know that this is hard and especially for those who are listening to us this is a really challenging time and there are emotions that are coming up that are difficult. There are conversations being had, especially in this political season that are difficult. And we just hope that you will give yourself grace and allow for these feelings to come up and for you to experience them, but to still find little glimmers of light and hope. And there's so much that we have to be grateful for this time of year and I'm so grateful for you too and for everyone who has tuned in to listen to us this season and it's okay to you know also lick our wounds this week like we all don't have to be jumping up and down and like feeling like super jazz like it it is a somber year and you know if this year we just kind of need to like eat some pie in bed and watch the queen's gambit who we're gonna do a shout out to (laughs) Then that's what it is this year. And that is okay, too. It is. is. We have a long way to go in 2021 for everyone, for the economy and for our health. But I know that there are some extraordinary potuses. We had such a hard time debating who was going to be the (laughs) potus of the week. Because there are so many awesome women, potuses, that have been showing themselves. Our potus of the week always goes out to a woman who's breaking barriers in her industry. Avril Haines, who's Biden's director of national intelligence pick, is such a cool woman. I mean, you guys, she not only is a pilot, she fixed a plane that she bought and had to, you know, take it down on an emergency landing over the Atlantic Ocean. She's a brown belt in judo. She had a small bookstore that she bought on auction in Baltimore and then turned it around to be such a terrific success that they wanted her to open more. She sounds like a Bond character. She also, I know, right? She also cared for her dying mother throughout her childhood she is just such an extraordinary empathetic person and to be director of national intelligence Darian I know you can speak to this more than I can but that is just power to her absolutely and you know we're seeing so many women being nominated for top positions and I know we'll see more over the coming weeks but this one right out the gate is so impressive and I'm so proud of President-elect Biden for having the good thought to have Avril be in this position. And finally, we have our shout out of the week, which is a time where we highlight a notable person either in pop culture or someone who's otherwise caught our eye. And this week, that's Anya Taylor-Joy, who is the star of The Queen's Gambit. It has been the biggest scripted series on Netflix to date. It ranked number one in 63 countries. And even How to Play Chess has hit a nine-year peak on Google. So that's obviously (laughs) piqued a lot of folks' interest. But I don't know if you guys listening have had a chance to watch it. I binged it last weekend and absolutely loved it and have my mom watching it at the moment. So if you haven't 
check it out. It's definitely another like powerful female empowered story. And remember to subscribe so you'll be one of the first to hear our latest episode. We'd love if you could leave a rating or a review. That obviously always helps us build visibility. And we want to all wish you a happy, happy Thanksgiving from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you for being with us on this journey. We are thankful for you. Absolutely. Talk to you next week.